You can have a seat. Good morning. What a, what a great segue uh, that worship was into our time in the Word this morning. My name is Pat Coyle. Some of y'all are familiar to me. Some of you are not. It's great to be with you. My family and I worship over the Anderson campus. I've been at Grace 23 years. Uh, we, uh, I serve as the pastor for human resources, pastor to our staff. We have a growing staff, wonderful staff team. Uh, it's a privilege to serve in that way. It's been I guess I've been out here to worship with y'all three or four times. Uh, my wife Jeannie was with me at the 915 this morning, and um, it's always a pleasure to see what God's doing out here. And uh, uh, just really excited about the times ahead as the time draws near to move into that place up the street. That's exciting for y'all, I know. Um, we're, we're continuing in our uh, series on the, uh, the Pentateuch this morning, the, the first five books of the Bible. We, we kind of left Genesis off because we had done that a few years ago. So really Exodus through Deuteronomy. And uh, we have a real interesting passage to look at together this morning. Uh, as you'll see from the slide there, we have 16 chapters of Exodus to look at this morning. So we'll be about three hours. And uh, <laughs> now I, I was reminded of a story as I was just thinking about the length of this thing. There's a story of a lady who was just uh, new to town and really excited to find a new church home. And she went looking around. She came on Sunday morning to this particular place. About halfway through the sermon, she realized to her chagrin that this pastor was known for his lengthy, lengthy sermons. Uh, and so she endured, and it went on, and it went on. And, but she was going to have a really good spirit about it. So she got up uh, from when the service was over. She walked over to a brother across the aisle and said, Good morning. I'm glad it's done. And he said, Yes, sister, I'm glad it's done too. You have no idea. <laughs> I, I hope that won't be our response this morning. It's, uh, it's pretty easy to move through quickly, actually, uh, but it is a lot of ground to cover. And I'll also mention that uh, I was, um, let's see, I, this is the third Sunday uh, that I've done this message. So this is number six. It ought to be good, huh? Uh, <laughs> a little practice. Um, we uh, originally found out I was doing this sermon a couple, just, a, just, just before two Sundays ago. Uh, when uh, our colleague Buck Anderson, uh, they knew that his wife Val, uh, her, her mother, was passing away. And so Buck came to me the week that this sermon was due to be preached at Anderson and said, could you do it? And fortunately, Jeannie and I had just finished a 10-week study on this topic. And so I thought, you know, I could, I could, I could pull this together, I think, and I uh, want to continue, just uh, offer that as a reminder to continue in prayer uh, for Buck and Val. They got back to town yesterday afternoon and kind of trying to settle back into life uh, after uh, the memorial service and the various affairs with regard to Val's mom. So keep them in your prayers. Um, so the topic this morning is this thing called the tabernacle. I'm wondering how many of you, for how many of you, is that an unfamiliar term? I, I do not know that term. I do not know about the tabernacle. Wow, good. Got a bunch of scholars because I think it's important to kind of orient, orient ourselves around that. Uh, tabernacle, this word is the, is the Greek verb form of tent which is a noun, okay? So it's literally to tent, okay? If you think about that, it's to, to dwell, to uh, dwell in among, to live with. Um, it also is the uh, root word from which we get our English word tavern, okay? So if you think about a tavern, some of the more obvious aspects of a tavern we won't think about this Sunday morning, but if you think about a tavern, it was a, ga- a tavern, it was a gathering place uh, in the town. It's a place where people gathered together. It's kind of a center of town in those olden days. It was also often a place of lodging for uh, strangers and for newcomers in the town. People would come to the town and they would stay at the tavern. And interestingly, as this unfolds, we'll see in the Old Testament, ta- Old Testament tabernacle that God is the stranger. Uh, residing among us. And that's really the, the essence of the whole 
thing. So um, we began this series on the Pentateuch with a theme that God intends to glorify himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through humanity. And since that is who he is and that's what he's about, as a gracious God, it follows that he would equip us, that he would enable us, equip us to do that. He would empower us to fulfill that calling and bless his name that he would Emmanuel with us, that he would be with us in a very, very real and, uh, and profound way. And in his word, he affirms again and again and again, and we're going to see that this morning in amazing ways. That's exactly what he's doing. So in preparation for this, came across this quote by author Fred Zaspel. What distinguishes Christianity from all other religions is that it is a revealed religion. It's not about our search for God or our means of finding him. Christianity is not a religion that works its way upward. It's all about God coming to us, God in grace, making himself known to us and making a way for us to enjoy fellowship with him. What a profound statement, what a profound idea, what a profound reality of the difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world. If you're in a situation where you're presenting the gospel of Christ, you you should make the point. All other religious philosophy, all other religions in the world are about humans trying somehow to claw their way up to whatever their idea of God is, to to somehow attain uh, to, to him, to get near to him. And the Christian gospel is a beautiful reversal of that, that God extends himself to us, to be in relationship with us. So we take this idea and we apply it in the study of the tabernacle. We see that it beautifully illustrates the reality of that very thing, that in the tabernacle we see God coming to humanity, God making himself known to us, and God's desire for us to fellowship with him. That's shocking if you think about it. In the the vernacular, uh, God wants to room with me. God wants to dwell. He wants to live with me. He wants to do life with me. We shouldn't take that lightly. We shouldn't take that haphazardly. And this study, this look at the tabernacle, this look at this concept can help us to appreciate and to desire his presence because he desires to be present with us. So I want to jump right in and we're going to set a little context. So turn to Exodus 24, Exodus chapter 24. That's actually right in advance uh, of our, our focal passages. So in Exodus 24, the context in this story that we've been unfolding in the Pentateuch uh, is that God has revealed his um, intent with the covenant and what the law is going to look like. He's, he's revealed this to Moses. Moses brings it to the people, tells them all about it. And in Exodus 24, for example, in verse 7, uh, he takes the book of the covenant, reads it in the hearing of the people, and they say, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Those words are going to come back to haunt them in just a little bit. But they say, they affirm their participation with this covenant with God. And it goes on down in verse 12. In this context, God, the Lord says to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So he calls uh, Moses up. This is a, a serious Moment. He's calling him up to be with him. And um, then let's look at verse uh, uh, 15. Moses went up to the mountain. The cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud 
as he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So that sets the stage uh, for our passage where we're going to look this morning. And here's an overview of it. Basically, 40 days, 40 nights, Moses is on the mountain with God. We see that in the passage we just read. He receives the pattern of the tabernacle. That's chapters 25 through 30. And the tablets containing the Ten Commandments. That's chapter 31. Big, big swath of scripture we're doing here. All is put at risk in Exodus 32 through 34. This is the twist in the plot line, the crisis in the plot line. Uh, and and uh, this is the golden calf incident. I think we've looked at that already in a previous sermon. So all is put at risk to everything that's happening, both the covenant and this outworking of the covenant and the plan of the tabernacle. But I'm, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you how it ends. The tabernacle gets constructed. And so that's the last uh, 35 through 40, the last of the chapters uh, in our passage. So that's essentially our outline. If you like a more kind of a Western outline, here it is. There's the planning phase. There's your chapters. The golden calf incident. There's your chapters. And then the construction phase. A very simple, simple outline uh, of this passage. But we're going to do a whole lot more than that as well. But let's talk about the planning phase, first of all. Um, think about a building project. Not too hard to do here at Creekside because we're in the midst of that right now. Uh, way back when, uh, we, as we began to envision this place that would be built, we secured the financing. Um, we knew the purpose. We had a purpose in mind. We patterned the construction, and then the building took place. And we see I guess in our playing out of that, the creativity, the wisdom of God in the way that he instructs, because he does exactly that same thing here in chapter 25. First thing is the raising of the resources. He speaks to Moses, tell the sons of Israel, raise up a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. Who's the focus on there? Me, my, me, God. He can do that. He can be me focused, right? Because he is God and he is worthy. It's about him. That's what this thing is about. It's about his glory. And this is the contribution that you're to raise from them, gold, silver, bronze, material, wood, oil, spices, stones for the ephod and the breast piece. Now, those are parts of the priestly garb that we're going to see in just a minute. But um, think about this for just a second. Uh, These were former slaves, right? They just came out of slavery in Egypt. Where did they have the gold, silver, the bronze, all of these materials? Do you know? God arranged it when they left Egypt that the Egyptians... Through their wealth, them basically. It's quite a chapter to read. They, they, the, the children of Israel left slavery with plunder, basically, with wealth and riches and, and, and material goods that the Egyptians, I'm sure they had some of their own, but the, the vast majority of it had come from the provision that God gave them uh, through the Egyptians. And God's saying, now give it to me. Uh, this is, I have an intent for it. This is going to be a beautiful thing with a beautiful purpose. And uh, so he calls on the people to give. That's how the resources are raised. Keeping in mind the purpose, that's that second thing we said we, said we would look at if we're building something. He says, and let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. There it is. His purpose, his desire, the thing we're going to see throughout this story, uh, his desire is to dwell among his people. And that's the intention of the building of this tent, this tabernacle, this dwelling place. And then the design, he's very, very specific about that in verse 9. Note, uh, he says, according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. He wants it done particularly in a a particular way. There's obvious importance of God's glory and honor and the specificity of the instructions that he gives. He goes through that in great specificity and he says, just so, according to everything I tell you, This is how you need to build it. It's really, really important. Don't make a mistake. Don't err. So he proceeds to give the instructions. And 
We don't have time to, uh, to go into it all in great detail. Uh, we'll look back on it. What I want to show you is the, is the breadth of the instruction he gives. So I'm just going to go thumb through these pages. You can go with me, and I'm going to read my headings that I have in my version of the scripture here. Starting in chapter uh, 25, you have the offerings for the sanctuary, and then the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread. We're going to see what these things are in a few minutes. The golden lampstand, the curtains of linen, I'm just now chapter 26, the curtains of linen, the curtains of goat's hair, boards and sockets. Okay, right, you talk about detail. You're right down to the, the very, very precise details. Boards and sockets. The veil and the screen. Chapter 27, the bronze altar, the court of the tabernacle, the garments of the priests in chapter 28. Uh, There's quite a long discourse there on the garments of the priests, a lot of symbolism. The consecration of the priests. And then the sacrifices in chapter 29. Uh, the food for the priests, still in chapter 29. Chapter 30, the altar of incense and the anointing oil, the incense. 31, the skilled craftsman, the sign of the Sabbath. And then we come to chapter 32. So basically, with all that instruction given, this is what God was after. This is the basic design for the layout of the tabernacle. You have uh, an outer, uh, not really a wall. It's more like a wall of curtains. I thought I had a pointer here. There we are. Ooh, it disappears. Look at that. Okay, there's the outer wall, there's a courtyard, uh, and then, uh, you, so you come in through the gate on the east side there, the pointer's not working, east side gate, come in, uh, there's some elements there, you come into the tent, which is the actual tabernacle, the, the, the tent of meeting, the, this is the place where God would meet with his people, the, the two-thirds, the holy place, and the one-third, uh, the holy of holies, that's, that's about 20, uh, sorry, two point, two and a half basketball courts of square footage, okay, just not perfectly laid out in there, but the entire complex, about the size of two and a half basketball courts. It's placed in the center of the camp, um, and the tribe of Judah would be at the eastern gate. And we're going to begin to unfold a great deal of symbolism of Christ in the way that the tabernacle was designed and laid out. And you'll see uh, that the people had to go through the tribe of Judah. Jesus was the lion of the tribe of Judah through the eastern gate to enter uh, over there. But it was in the middle of the camp of the people. So here's some artist renderings through the years. In the earlier service, I said photographs. That would have been quite a, quite a work to have photographs of it. Uh, artist renderings of various artists' uh, interpretations of what it would have looked like uh, and uh, what they, as they listened, read about the plans, what they, what they thought. This is interesting with the American Indian motif with the teepees there. I don't know. I don't know what that one had in mind. I think probably a Bedouin tent is more, more along this line, uh, the tents that you see on the outside there. So in each of these drawings, though, it's kind of separate, right? There's a big, I like this one because look, it's right there in the midst of the camp, right there in the midst uh, of God's people. He sets himself up. That intent that he spoke to Moses about that he would dwell among his people. Well, all is not well. As I, as I indicated, there was a crisis uh, in the story, and that's chapters 32 through 34, this incident of the golden calf. I'm just going to read a couple of things about the incident and make a couple of points. Um, the episode that occurs here uh, threatens the covenant. It occurs strategically at that place where the people have said, yes, we will do this. And God has begun to give his instruction and the great specificity for him to dwell among his people in covenant. And right at that point, here comes this strategically placed opposition when you consider that we have a sworn enemy right between the plans for the tabernacle and its actual realization via construction 
And we see this. We've seen it before in Scripture. It's consistent with opposition to the covenant between God and mankind. Then a very interesting note, the same generation just a few chapters ago said, yes, we will obey completely. Same generation that experienced the Red Sea miracle participated in the golden calf incident, and they were later disqualified from entering the land. You know, you know the story, uh, Moses is up in the mountain, and God says, uh, you need to go back down, there's a noise in the camp. And uh, the people have uh, built an idol for themselves, and they worship that idol. So, a couple of points, just opposition is dependable. I've even seen it. This is, I said, this is the third Sunday I've been doing this. I've been at two different campuses prior to this. Every morning, things come up. We've had air conditioners break down. We've had slide projectors go down. Things come up, things that are trying to thwart, trying to set back, trying to stop uh, uh, the, the, the conveying of God's word, the, our doing God's will, his purpose for us. Opposition is dependable. It's not original. Sometimes it's really creative. Shouldn't be surprising. You should expect it. If you're walking obediently and you counter opposition, pray. Turn to the Lord. Can't handle it on your own. He has a purpose for you, through you. He will bring about that purpose. Depend on him. Cry out, on him, cry out to him uh, and pray and, and press on. Second thing is that sometimes we find, as in this case, that we are the opposition. <laughs> the source, the, the tool being used for the opposition was God's people, they themselves. You find yourself in that situation where you are the opposition, it's time to turn. Time to turn away from whatever that thing is, whatever that idol is. And idolatry, as in the case here and as in our lives, any kind of idolatry destroys our relationship with God, gets us off of his purpose. And so we need to turn and not be the opposition to God's plan. We want to be the fulfillment of his plan in our lives. So there we are in the story. If you're familiar with this, the Ten Commandments, this is my generation. Charlton Heston is Moses, right? I mean, he just, he just, I don't believe in reincarnation, but somehow they've got to be the same person. He's just, he's an amazing Moses. This is in that scene right where he smashes the tablets uh, because of what he came down to the camp and he discovered. And uh, to complete the interlude, you know, he wants to wipe them out. And, and uh, Moses cries out on their behalf. God relents, although he does do some smiting. There, is some, there are some consequences. There are some people who are taken out as a result of their sin. Sin is serious before God, but uh, he leads them on. He restores the tablets. The covenant is renewed. There's that great passage when Moses has the glory of God shining from his face. People couldn't even look at it. He had to wear a veil because of the glory of God. That was at that, at that moment of returning, of renewing the covenant. Opposition is overcome. God is gracious, his plan goes on, and we move on to building the tabernacle. So, really quick overview. This is, this is doable really quickly. It's six chapters, but uh, basically contributions are requested. Workmen are called. Gifts are received. Those gifts that we read about, that we spoke of, uh, they're received and they're put to work. Uh, key workers are endowed with skill from God. That's just an awesome foreshadowing of the, of the giving of, of spiritual gifts to us as believers through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that God gives special enablings. He gave special enablings of the craftspeople in this, in this course to, to do these amazing, amazing uh, skills. And then the tabernacle is built and the tabernacle is outfitted. That's our outline. Have a great Sunday. God bless you. No, we're not done yet. There's a little bit more. There's a whole lot more to this, actually. But that's the outline. That's the story uh, of these passages, these chapters. And again, there's this uh, illustration 
uh, rendering of what God was after. And you see there his glory, the manifestation or the, the representation of what was to be his glory over the back part of the tent, the Holy of Holies. That's the place where his presence would actually be manifest. And so that bright, shiny uh, uh, pillar of cloud by day, fire by night, that, that representation of God's glorious presence with his people. But there's so, so much more. So what we want to do is walk through the temple or the tabernacle complex, through the gate, through the complex, uh, outer court, Inner, 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 uh, the inner tent, etc., uh, looking at each element, and we want to look a little bit more deeply at each element because of this idea, uh, this idea of typology in the elements of the tabernacle. That is, as the story of the Bible unfolds, uh, every element, each and every element of the tabernacle uh, is seen to take on a deeper meaning, and ultimately we see that meaning fulfilled in Jesus Christ and what he did on our behalf uh, on this earth, on the cross. So, there's the tabernacle complex, uh, and that symbolism begins in the complex itself, the whole, the whole thing that you see there. Uh, if you remember, or it, we, should, we should know that from what we said so far, the tabernacle complex is God's dwelling place with, among, and in the midst of his people. How is that fulfilled in Christ? That one's pretty simple. John 1. Beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see again the overarching, amazing reality of God's desire to dwell with us, fulfilled in Christ Himself. So the, 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 the complex itself symbolizes uh, Christ, but then you enter that through that eastern gate, you enter the outer court, you would run into three things. First, a person, the priest. Uh, the priest was a mediator. The, the backbone of the Old Testament uh, teaching and sacrificial ministry uh, through all the time that it was active was the priest. He taught, he guided with and through the sacrificial system, thus mediating. He performed the sacrificial system. The sacrifices uh, that took place uh, were were his work on behalf of the people. That idea of mediating in that process between man and God. His garb, his activities were rich with symbolism. He had heavy responsibility. We're going to hit a couple of times as we go through this on points where the priest, if he did anything wrong, would die. The consequences were high because the holiness of God is so highly, highly honored in this entire system. So if his role is mediator, how much more so the person of Christ? We see in First uh, Timothy and Hebrews, that, that the, the high priesthood of Jesus and the fact that he is the mediator, the one mediator between God and men, uh, he is the man Christ Jesus. Next thing we would encounter would be the bronze altar. Uh, to not be too familiar, but basically the bronze altar was a great big barbecue pit. Fire was going all the time and things were being burned on the bronze altar. The things that were being burned all day long were the uh, sacrifices that the people brought. I think you had here at Creekside the uh, message on the festivals uh, last week. And in those festivals, there were sacrifices, sacrifices such as the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin and guilt offerings. They were burned here on the bronze altar. Most importantly, when a atoning sacrifice was given, a sin offering was given, uh, the person making the sacrifice would have to lay their hand on the head of that perfect lamb while it was slaughtered and the lifeblood drained out of it in order to be uh, personally connected with the atrocity of our sin. 
the high cost and consequence of our sin. The, 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 uh, the hand would be placed on that perfect lamb as it would be sacrificed. The blood was shed. We see the shedding of blood before the Old Testament sacrificial system, the animals that had to be killed to clothe Adam and Eve, the, the blood that had to be put on the doorposts at Passover, uh, this idea of a sacrificial lamb so, so central uh, to, to that era, that time of relationship between God and man, and certainly Jesus' fulfillment as the Lamb of God who takes away sin of the world. The next thing you'd come to is the bronze labor. After the sacrifice, the priest would wash at the labor. Uh, it would purify him in preparation to enter the holy place. If he did not wash, if he did not wash properly, he would die upon entering the holy place. High consequences again to uh, fulfill his role perfectly. Um, the bronze labor was made out of bronze, obviously, from mirrors. And uh, an interesting aspect of that plunder that we spoke of, the people uh, probably bringing from Egypt their mirrors, bronze would be polished so highly that you could see your reflection in it. It's an interesting idea uh, that this washing, that this cleansing take place, there had to be a sacrifice of vanity on behalf of the people uh, offering those mirrors to be melted down and create the labor. And then it was filled with water. Water has always uh, literally and figuratively been a key element in, in cleansing, religiously speaking, and certainly practically speaking. And certainly we see uh, that in Jesus. We have that confidence to enter the holy place by his blood, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So each of those elements and the fulfillment in Christ Back to where we are in, the, in our journey inward. We've come through the courtyard and we're approaching the holy place. And then beyond that, uh, the holy of holies that you see. Um, entry to the holy place and the holy of holies could only be uh, by the cleansed priest. So the holy place, three elements, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table of bread. We'll look at those three very quickly. Now, if you read the descriptions, and I'd encourage you to spend some time in those descriptions of how God said to build this thing, because it really, really is interesting, and there's much more symbolism even than we can hit on uh, in our relatively brief time this morning. But the, uh, the uh, covering of the tent, the veils were made of a very, very heavy, heavy material. It wasn't just a, a, a khaki or, or something. It was a, a thick and heavy material that covered everything. So inside uh, this tent, it would be dark were it not uh, for the golden lampstand. It was light in a dark space. One solid piece of gold with seven branches, each with knobs, flowers, and almond bowls. So the, the motif was like an almond tree. The bowls held the oil uh, and then the wicks in the bowls. The priest would daily trim the wicks to keep the light burning, and they kept it burning constantly. With there being seven branches, there's a whole lot of symbolism with the number uh, seven. There's the seven lamps uh, in Revelation 4, the seven branch lampstand in Revelation 4 in the throne room. Uh, there's the seven attributes of the Spirit, etc., etc., etc. But Jesus' fulfillment is seen in the, just the obvious way that he spoke to this in saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And interesting, there's the New Testament reference to the seven churches, and uh, Jesus also said that we are the light of the world, and so the church being light as well, lots of, lots of rich uh, symbolism there. The next item, uh, the altar of incense. The priest would burn a very specifically selected and put together uh, recipe for uh, incense to be burned here. 
Uh, there is an instance of wrong fire being burned by priests, and they died. Once again, the seriousness of them fulfilling their calling perfectly. Uh, on the Day of Atonement, the uh, altar of incense would be sprinkled with blood from the sacrifice. Uh, this is the place where the angel met Zechariah to announce that Elizabeth would, have, uh, would be pregnant with John the Baptist. Um, incense has always symbolized prayer, and the ongoing, the nonstop burning of incense in this uh, particular altar uh, makes us think of Christ who always lives to make intercession for us. His intercession is unceasing. And then the table of bread or the table of showbread uh, was a, pra- a place where the priest would place 12 uh, special loaves. They were representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, symbolism everywhere. Uh, they were a continual symbol of God's promises to Israel to be provider that God would be their provider, the provider uh, of, of all that they needed. Um, Aaron, his sons, future priests, would, would be able to eat of the bread and replace it each Sabbath. So it stayed relatively fresh. I guess it was week-old bread by the, by the time Sabbath rolled around. But they were able to eat of it and receive sustenance from it. Symbolism, again, in the bread, in Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So then we move to the to where it really, really gets interesting and amazing, and that's the most holy place, or the holy of holies, the Hebrew holy, holy. Uh, it's the most, the most holy place. Uh, we have the holy place itself. We have the veil to look at, and um, the uh, the Ark of the Covenant within. We'll look at, we'll see the holy of holies uh, in a different representation in just a minute. But as we look at the veil, um, this was between the holy place and the most holy place. Uh, it, was, it was a separation between all of humankind and even the representative priest and that place where God himself in all of his glory and all of his magnificence uh, would dwell. And um, it provided actual separation then between God and mankind. It was thick. It was beautifully designed. Uh, it was strategically placed there, obviously, uh, and the connection to Christ in the, in the veil is a little bit different in that it isn't, uh, it isn't that he symbolizes the veil, but that what he did on the cross took away the symbolism of the veil. That is, when Jesus cried out at his crucifixion, he yielded up his spirit. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When you read the description of what that veil was made of and how thick it was for it to be just torn with no one there to tear it, it's quite an amazing think, thing to think about, quite an amazing work on God's part to say that separation is ended through what Christ did on the cross. So he's the, the perfect fulfillment of that. I didn't mention earlier the, the Holy of Holies itself was, was uh, square and the same, uh, the height was the same as the walls. So it's a perfect cube, perfect in its dimensions. So you're going to see representation of that in just a second. Uh, interesting thought just on that, that idea is if, you're, if, if you were in the Holy of Holies, you wouldn't be, but there's four, uh, four from, from each of the four sides, perfectly placed, with the ark placed perfectly in the middle, you would view uh, the atoning work of the, of the Ark of the Covenant from four different angles. Kind of a parallel there to the four Gospels and the four different views on the atoning work of Christ. So many interesting things in this. Um, the, uh, so there's the ark as it would sit inside the Holy of Holies. Uh, once a year, the priest... Uh, the high priest would enter. He would approach the ark on the Day of Atonement. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Notice the shape of it. Uh, one of the words for ark 
uh, can, can lean toward the idea of a coffin, and you kind of see that. Um, uh, ark was also the basket that Moses was preserved in, and then, of course, the Ark of Noah. Uh, this is a little bit different word here in Ark of the Covenant. And if you imagine uh, Christ, uh, when he was crucified, placed in the tomb, and his followers came back to the tomb, uh, and what they found was the place where he had lain, and the angels on either end of the place where he had lain. And we'll see there's a definite connection to Christ's death and his blood right here in that place of, of resting between the wings of the cherubim. I'm just going to read a couple of things about the ark. It was the throne of Yahweh. He dwelt in a localized way, made manifest his presence with his people. The mercy seat was the removable lid of the hollow golden box. Inside the ark were Aaron's budding rod, jar of manna, and the Ten Commandments that were uh, written by God onto the stone tablets. His, uh, his dwelling place among his people and his relationship with them literally sat above these three elements. And I think you had the, the message on the festivals. In that message on the festivals, we looked at the idea that uh, the three items were reminders. This is viewed differently by different scholars, by the, by the way, but the, uh, viewed by scholars as, as reminders of Israel's rebelliousness and, and God's ultimate provision from this point on would be the blood of the sacrifice applied to the seat so that in taking occupancy on it, uh, God's people's rebellious failure would be covered by the blood of sacrifice. So this was the place on the mercy seat that the high priest offered sacrificial blood once a year to atone for, to Kippur, Yom Kippur, to cover, day of atonement, to cover all the sins of Israel as a nation. So we've seen each element as symbolic of Christ, and we see it nowhere more profoundly uh, for our own salvation than here on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat uh, from, uh, from, Hebrews, from Hebrews 9. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Got to pause for a minute because in a few moments as we wrap up, we're going to look at some applications, and uh, one of the most important applications to this idea of God desiring to dwell with you is, do you know him? Do you have relationship? Do you have a basis upon which for him to dwell with you? Because our sins cause us a problem. We've seen that again and again. Our sinfulness in the presence of God's holiness is a problem. The most beautiful description in scripture, I think, of what Christ did to solve that problem for us. What Christ did on the cross living that perfect life, shedding his blood and that death on the cross, uh, rising to defeat death and hell was the payment that God needed on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we place our trust in what he did on the cross, not our own efforts to somehow claw our way up to have a relationship with him, but turning by faith to him and what he did on the cross, the Bible says, by trusting in him, we may know that we have eternal life, 1 John 5. We can know that we have that relationship with him. And everything that we talk about today, if you don't know that, if you have not experienced that today, that's the most important thing that could take place in your life, be to come to him in relationship through faith 
in Jesus Christ. So there is where we've been. It's constructed. There's another rendition of what uh, that inside of the uh, holy place and the holy of holies uh, would look like. And at the end of chapter 40, God affirms the tabernacle's construction in a really profound way. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and not even Moses was able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Even Moses was unable to enter from this point on. From this point on, Aaron, his sons, future priests, via the system that we've begun studying in Leviticus, was the only way to enter the Holy of Holies until Christ and the rending of the veil. So real briefly as we wrap up, let's trace the, uh, the timeline uh, as God's intended plan to dwell with us moves on past the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a mobile form to go along with the people as they were nomads. But uh, in, 900, in the 900s BC, uh, property was acquired by David and built upon by his son Solomon to build the first temple, a permanent place one more beautiful on that very significant piece of real estate in Jerusalem. And then uh, there was about 450 years of, of practice of temple of sacrificial system in the temple itself uh, before the uh, uh, rebelliousness of the people, the exile occurred, and the first temple was destroyed, 586 B.C., and Nebuchadnezzar at that point. The interesting uh, mention uh, at this time, as the temple's uh, at this time of the temple's destruction, in Ezekiel describing the departure of the glory at captivity. So the glory of God, you know, resided in this holy of holies in the temple. The departure of the glory it describes it as moving out uh, to the east in chapters ten and eleven and eleven twenty three. It's a mountain to the east of the temple. It's the last place that the glory is seen. That would be the Mount of Olives. Okay, so hold on to that thought uh, for just a minute. Uh, if you move on then, the second temple was built by Zerubbabel and Ezra, and then it was uh, further restored. The walls were further restored in 444 BC. So this is the post-exile uh, second temple. Uh, that temple was expanded uh, by Herod uh, leading up to and you know, during the time of Christ. And that would be uh, probably the most... Uh, architecturally glorious temple that, that there was until future times come along. This is a, another artist's rendition of it. It was a pinnacle in terms of beauty and glory of architecture, uh, but its glory, there's some debate as to whether, you know, once the glory departed when I read it, did it, did it, did it re-reside in this temple? There's some, some debate on that, but, uh, but truly the glory of this temple uh, was not its architecture, but was this, this, is the, this is the temple where Christ himself ministered during his lifetime, where we, we see him uh, in it, ministering in it. So the actual God with us is now dwelling in the temple. Luke 2, Simeon calls Jesus the glory of Israel, standing in this, in this temple. So uh, that, that uh, occurred until uh, uh, really the destruction, we're going to, well, let's put it up there, the destruction in 70 AD. But with the rending of the veil, uh, this uh, period uh, is, is Christ's atoning work is done, and by faith, we experience God with us through the Holy Spirit residing in us. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in the lives of believers. What an amazing thing. What an amazing new additional chapter in this idea of God's desire 
uh, to dwell with us. But the physical temple's destroyed in 70 AD. And today, you see, I don't think my pointer was working very well. No. Um, uh, you see the Wailing Wall down there and the larger stones. That would be some foundational stones from the temple itself. But there, seated on the site of God's temple, is this, uh, this symbol of Islam. Um, sitting atop the place where God's temple was once, and uh, a fraction of the structure uh, there, not even a fraction. Uh, and so it seems like this is, this is the end of the story, but God's plan is still not done. We see in prophecy that yet a third temple will be rebuilt, will be built, the tribulation temple. Uh, Antichrist uh, stops sacrifice. If he, if he desecrates the temple, a temple must exist. We don't have it right now, right? We don't know when that's going to occur, when it's going to be built, but it is desecrated. It is later destroyed. So there is that, that uh, tribulation temple, the third temple. And then Christ's return occurs in this time. This is a really rough timeline, okay? But uh, there would be a fourth temple at the time of Christ's millennial reign. And in here is Christ's return. You remember the description of the departure of glory to the east and out, up from the Mount of Olives? Well, in uh, Zechariah 14, it's described that, that beautiful scene where Jesus returns and where do his feet set down? On the Mount of Olives, the return of his glory is on that same place from which it departed, splitting the Mount of Olives, just glorious, glorious description. Glory's return is described as from the east in Ezekiel 43. Uh, it's just amazing to think that that is at the spot of the departure of it as Jesus Christ comes and returns. But that's not even all of it yet. There will yet be the new heavenly temple, the eternity temple. One more ultimate temple. I saw a new heaven, a new earth for the first heaven, the earth first earth had passed away, no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning, any crying, or pain, the first things have passed away. Full circle in this narrative of God's desire and his plan to be with us, with his people. So as we round the corner to the end, we see that from creation to Christ's return, we behold this story of scripture, this most magnificent idea in all of religion, really all the religions of the world, that God desires to live in and among us. Emmanuel God with us. It's an idea without parallel in the religions of the world. So from its plan that we saw to its completion, to its greater glory in the temple, ultimately, and there's the cube, there's the holy of holies, a depiction of that perfect holy of holies, the tabernacle of God coming at the culmination of times, culmination of his glorious plan, God himself shall be among them. So what do we do with this? It's a great story. It's a great story. I just want to encourage you to think about it, <laughs> to marvel for some time today, this week, this idea that God has given us this clear narrative of his desire to dwell with you, to dwell with me, to do life with 
us and the perfection and the complexity of the way that that story is woven across. You can look back, you can look forward, you can see it fulfilling itself and its ultimate fulfillment. All of this one huge narrative is just to me an, an, an insurance of its truth. How could, how could this be created in the minds of any, of any person? Marvel at what God has said, at what he has done, and ask, do I want to tabernacle with him? Do I want that? If you're not a believer, as I said earlier, Turn to him. Put your faith, your trust in Christ. Know him so that you can know that you have that relationship with him so that you can begin to grow in that relationship with him. And finally, God's word is clear that he desires that we tabernacle among others, that we spend time out and living with the people around us who need to know him. And that has ramifications here in our own neighborhoods, in our own places of work. It has global ramifications. God is His desire is that we, as his people, tabernacle among every tribe and tongue and people and nation so that that fulfillment ultimately of worship of all nations before him in end times can take place. What's your part in that? Are you living out his desire that you tabernacle among others? The important things, important questions to think about. Before we wrap up, I'm going to give you a second minute or so to pray silently. Ask yourself those questions. uh, Pray before God and let's, uh, let's take that to him. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your word, the complexity of your word, the simplicity of your word, the story of uh, humanity, of history that you've told and and woven through that, this this evidence of your desire to be with your people, to live among your, your creation, your creatures. Thank you for that today, God. I pray it would have a profound impact on our uh, lives, on how we view you, on how we worship you, on how we serve you. And God, that we would be challenged uh, to, to take that amazing example of what you've done for us and to live it out so that others might know you and might grow in you and might experience the, the wealth that we have in that relationship with you. And so, God, would you just uh, uh, take this story and make it application uh, in our lives that we might uh, serve you more obediently, more empowered, more enabled by you, more dependent upon you, God, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for your attention today. God bless you. Go out and be among them as you have that opportunity.